ask you to open your Bibles to that passage in Matthew that we read earlier, Matthew chapter 21. Let's take a look at God's word this morning. Last couple chapters, well, starting in chapter 16 and 17, and then again in chapter 19, we see Jesus give several reminders, three in fact, reminding his disciples of what was going to happen as he made his way to Jerusalem. He said he's going up to Jerusalem, and there the, the, the elders, the chief priests, they were going to arrest him. They were going to beat him. They were going to kill him, put him to death. They were going to hang him on a cross, and he was going to be resurrected on the third day. The disciples didn't enjoy hearing that message. When Peter first heard it, he said, no, no, Lord, that, that, that's not going to happen. And, of course, Jesus rebuked Peter in that. But he repeated that three times along the way to tell them exactly what was going to happen. Now he is making his way into Jerusalem. It says in the first verse of 21, now when they drew near to Jerusalem. So this, these events are happening on the way, on the path to crucifixion and to resurrection. This we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday, uh, the, the moment when Jesus is celebrated um, and worshipped and praised as a king. Look, notice what, what happens here. First, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples to, uh, to, to, to find this donkey and this colt and to bring them to him and that he has already made provision for that. So when the owners ask, what are you doing? Tell them that Jesus needs this and everything will be fine. So they do that. And it tells us in verse 4 that this is happening to fulfill what the Old Testament has said about Jesus' ministry. And here's what it says in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It's an unusual circumstance, but the Old Testament makes it clear that this Messiah will come into Jerusalem with a triumphal entry, but an unusual one because it's an humble entry. It's, it's a king riding on a lowly animal. And so this is a sign of fulfillment from God's word. Now, Jesus is, is particular about making sure that this is set as the Old Testament has set it because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. This is Jesus presenting himself and fulfilling scripture, presenting himself as king to his people. I want you to notice what happens. It says here, behold, your king is coming. So the, the, the Old Testament is, is, is clear. Jesus is clear on what he's doing. This is not just any old person or some regular person. This is the king being presented to Israel. Notice how they salute him. It says in verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them 
on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This Hosanna is fulfillment of scriptures. You can find it in Psalm 118. In fact, let's just turn there real quickly. Psalm 118, we'll look at verse 25 and 26. What does the word Hosanna mean? Well, it means it's, it's a combination of two words. Save us, please. It's a combination of those two words in the Hebrew. Save us, please. I beg you, save us. And then at the end of that phrase, O oh Lord. So it's, O oh Lord, please save us. In Psalm 118, verse 25, it says, Save us, we pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is what Jesus is proclaiming in front of the people. And this is the scripture that they use to worship and praise him. It's not by accident. They didn't just make this up in the spirit of the moment. In fact, I think in, in, in a very strange way that they are pronouncing exactly what God has declared over his son Jesus. And I don't even know if they know all of the meaning that's in this proclamation, but certainly God knows and Jesus knows. And now we know because it's recorded in Scripture. In fact, you'll see later on, the Pharisees understood exactly the significance of this meeting, and we'll get to that in, in, in a bit. But here's what they're saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? It is his character, his authority. Jesus is declaring to be coming in the authority of Jehovah God. He's not coming in his own authority. He's the one coming in authority of God. Now, it's, it's strange that, they, that the people or the crowd declare this. You, you would wonder, is the whole crowd embracing this? I don't know that they're fully embracing it, but they're saying it because it is true, and God has declared it to be so. But look at the other reaction of the crowd. Verse 19 this is going to be verse 10. It says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? You, they, they see his entry, and they know something special about it, but they're wondering who's deserving of this kind of salutation and praise. Who is this, they say. And the answer comes this. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I, I'm sorry, but... I don't get the sense that the people who say that have a great deal of respect and honor for Jesus. I don't think that quite goes along with what the psalmist says in Psalm 118. I think what they're saying there is, it's, it's the prophet. It's like, it's, like, it's like calling me a preacher, just an old preacher. That's not a title of respect necessarily. If a prophet was not something, someone that was always regarded highly by the people. Should they be regarded? Yes. Were they? No. In other words, Jesus just, he, I don't know who that is, just, just a prophet. Who is he? His name is Jesus. Where is he from? Yeah, well, from Galilee, Nazareth. 
You know how that was looked down in their, in, in their circles? That who, whoever comes from Galilee, what kind of person is this? I think that's the tenor of what they're saying. This, yeah, well, yeah, I know what they're saying. They're they, they, they saying Hosanna as if he's the king. He's just some self-proclaimed prophet from some place that nobody knows or cares about or has any significance, or so they thought. So I don't think Jesus was fully endorsed by the crowd. In fact, I think we'll find out. Well, let's, let's, let's continue on. As he comes into the temple, he is declaring himself to be who the word of God declares him to be. And he makes his claim and he stakes that claim by what he does in the temple. He comes into the temple. It says he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He had a zeal and a passion for the house of God, the temple that he came in. You it reminded there's only one temple that Israel had, and that was in Jerusalem. They worshiped in, in the areas on the outskirts or, or other cities in synagogues as they gathered together. But Jesus now is coming into Jerusalem in the temple, and he shows great authority there. It says in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He cleanses the temple. He heals the blind and the, le the lame. But we see not all are receptive to him. In verse 15, we see another response. It says, but, <laughs> you notice that word in contrast. In contrast to the humble and meek uh, 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 attitude of those who are blind and lame who come to Jesus for healing, we have the chief priests and the scribes. It says, when they, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Now, first of all, why are they indignant? They fully, I'll say fully, I think they understood the significance of this phrase being addressed to Jesus. Hosanna in the highest. And they are angry about it. Notice what it says when they saw the wonderful things that he did. I think wonderful has to do with full of wonder. The miracles and the signs, the healings that set him apart from everybody else that you couldn't argue about. When they saw those things and they heard it says children crying in the temple. Hosanna, the son of David. They were indignant. They didn't like it. And they questioned Jesus. Don't you hear what they're saying? In other words, they, they have an understanding of what that means. And Jesus does not deny their understanding. In fact, he reinforces it. He, they say to Jesus, don't you hear them? Other passages say, aren't you going to stop them from doing that? Are you going to receive or are you going to reject what it is they say about you? Jesus said to them, yes, 
In other words, do I hear them? Do I accept that? Yes, I certainly do. And he says, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. It's almost a sense of they may not even fully understand what they're saying, but they're speaking the word of God in truth, and I agree, Jesus is saying. I don't deny that I am the king as presented in the Old Testament. I am before you right now. Let's be clear on what I'm saying. Jesus showed his authority in the temple when he was questioned with what the word of God said about him. He says, I line up with the word of God that, that has prophesied this. I am that person. Verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. He didn't stay overnight in, the, in, in Jerusalem. He went to a nearby town, and he stayed there. I think we can look at some of the Gospels and, and kind of fill in those blanks. But there's not many blanks there because it says in the morning he comes back. The next day, in the morning he was returning to the city. He became hungry. Let me just pause right here. Because what happens in the rest of the chapter is directly attached to this event right here. And it tells us something. What happens after this is very important. We see the curse of the fig tree and two parables that follow. Jesus is condemning Israel and calling them to repentance. Because they have rejected their king. The first is in an actual occurrence of what happens. He comes in the morning. He passes by a fig tree that doesn't have any figs on it, nothing but leaves, and he curses the tree. What do you mean by curse? He condemns it. You'll never grow another piece of fruit, and that tree withered and died. The disciples were amazed at that. He says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled. How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus used that as an example to teach them about God's purpose. And as they pray towards God's purpose, they'll see that answered. The fig tree represents Israel. And the fact that Jesus is coming and looking for fruit from Israel, from his people. John 1 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They are rejecting Jesus. Let's take a little look at the fig tree. In, in our verses here, it's verse 18 through 22. But what I want you to look at is a parable about a fig tree in Luke chapter 13, verse 6 through 9. Can you turn there with me? Luke chapter 13, verse 6 through 9. I want to be clear, this event that happens right as he's re-entering Jerusalem is an actual event, and now we're going to see a parable about it. In other words, a story about the idea of the fig tree itself. 
you'll see that they're connected. The fig tree represents Israel. In Luke chapter 13, verse 6, let's just read through that. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use, up, use the ground? Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And that's, that's simply a parable or story that Jesus tells for them to understand something about this fig tree. What's the significance? That seems clear. The man owned the fig tree. He had waited patiently for years for it to bear fruit, and he had no fruit. He condemned the tree and commanded it to be cut down. But the vine dresser said, pleaded with him, can you wait just one more season, one more year? I, I, I'll fertilize it. I'll dress it. I'll, I'll do all the things so that it can really bear fruit. If you wait one more year, then if you don't see any fruit after that, fine, then tear it down. This is a prophetic warning of what Jesus is saying. And we see his picturing of this when he comes into Jerusalem and he sees this fig tree and he, he curses it and it withers away. This goes along with the rest of the chapter. Jesus is condemning Israel, those who he has come to to present the gospel, and they have wholeheartedly rejected the gospel. Back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23 through 27. Jesus encounters, has the encounter with the fig tree. He continues on. This is the next day now. He continues on into the temple where he teaches. And while he's teaching, it says in verse 23, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you, are you doing these things? In other words, they, it's like they interrupted his very teaching and questioned him on his authority. Now, we've looked at this verse before they challenged his authority, and he says, okay, since you asked me a question about my authority, I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll give you an answer. And he asked them, John the Baptist, what was his authority? Was it man from man or was it from God? And they kind of got together and said, oh, man, if we say it's from man, the people are going to be mad at us because they respect John the Baptist. But if we say it's from God, he's going to say, well, why aren't you following it? It was clear that they weren't following it. It was also clear to all the people that what John had done was from God's very authority, and so was Jesus's. What John said was he was a forerunner. He was preparing people to trust in Jesus. And so they come back to Jesus and say, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I guess I ain't going to tell you what authority I come with. In other words, he exposed their hypocrisy. They knew clearly what John's authority was. 
and they knew also clearly what Jesus' authority was, but they denied it. And Jesus is condemning them for that act. What is the saying to us today? I'm amazed when people think that there are skeptics today who don't trust in Jesus, and they usually uh, come off as being intellectually skeptic. Nonsense. Now, they may be deceived, but the evidence is there, and there's so much to see that they choose to simply ignore. And they refuse. But, you know, their refusal, even on the basis of, of intellectual understanding, is not going to be held up in a court of heaven. Neither will yours point is we have been presented with the Lord Jesus Christ and we have no excuse to deny him, to refuse him, or to fail to embrace him fully for who he is. So Jesus goes on and he tells two parables that both point to this same rebellion and denial of him. The first parable is the parable of the two sons. In verse 28 through 32, the parable emphasizes the rebellion and the lack of repentance of the chief priests and the elders. Jesus tells the parable of two sons. The one son, the father tells the son, go and work in the field. And he says, I will not. He utterly refuses. It says later, he changes his mind, and he obeys and does what his father is asking. The second son, the father says the same thing to him, go and work in the field. And he says, I'll go, and he never goes. So Jesus asked the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests there, he asked them, which son was obedient? And they give the right answers, the first son. Because why? Because he repented. Because he said he wouldn't go, but he changed his mind. In other words, repentance, that's what repentance is, a change of heart. He changed his mind, and he did what the Father told him to do. And so Jesus makes a strong point to them. By the way, you can understand the connection of this and the fact that these parables are pointed towards Israel and pointed specifically towards the leaders of Israel. Let me just skip to the last verse in this chapter. It says in verse 46, although they were seeking to arrest him, excuse me, uh, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And truly he was. So in the two sons, he says to them, Let's just read it right from Scripture in verse 31. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. He says, I know why you couldn't answer my question about John's authority. Because you acknowledge his authority privately, but you don't obey him and don't follow 
what he said. Like the first son, they refused to accept the father's authority and they rebelled. But unlike the first son, they never repented. Like the second son, they recognized the father's authority privately and know they're compelled to obey, but they never do. The point here is they do not repent. Jesus is calling for those who have turned from him to totally embrace, to repent of their sin and turn to him. The next parable he talks about is the parable of the tenants, verses 33 to the end of the chapter. And this is a parable. I love the parables because they're simple stories and they they bring down the point that Jesus is making. In this parable, he says there's a master who, who owns a field and he, he lets out the, or, or, or uh, rents out this field. Actually, he hires those who will care and plant this field for him. And he comes back later to get the fruit of what he has paid for and invested. They disregard the master's request for the fruit or the profits from this field. And so he sends them servants or he sends them messengers. They disregard the messengers, even punish the messengers and kill the messengers. Before I go further, you get the idea. It's a vineyard. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Israel is pictured as the vineyard of God. Jesus is making that application here. Let me just read Isaiah 5, just a few verses there. Isaiah chapter 5. I know I'm asking a lot of you today. You thought since it's cold outside, we'll just come to church and just breeze right through and uh, sing a few songs and go home. Well, since you're here, you might as well look into the Word of God. Amen. Isaiah chapter 5 says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hold. And briars and thorns shall grow up, shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Here's the verse. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The picture is clear. God sees Israel as his vineyard, and Jesus is directing these parables 
so that the people of Israel can understand clearly what he's saying. Go back to this parable of the tenants. He said this man who was the master or the owner planted a vineyard. The man represents God himself. His vineyard represents Israel and its leaders. He has planted in his vineyard fruit that he expects to get from it, and he comes back to get this fruit, and he is denied of it. He sends servants to take the profit that he is entitled to, and they are rejected and killed. And lastly, he says, I'm going to send my son, because they're going to honor and respect him. But when the son gets there, they disrespect him. They take him aside. They brutally kill him, and they think that they are now the owners or they can do as they please with the vineyard instead of doing as God pleases. Then Jesus asked this question in this parable. What do you think the owner is going to do now? What do you think he's going to do? And they answer the question because it's clear. The owner is going to hold these tenants accountable and he's going to utterly destroy them for murdering his son. And he's going to take his land, fire all of them, and bring in new tenants to bring fruit from his land that he's expected all along. These are the stories that he tells. Look what he says in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? He uses another scripture, and he ties in the simple truth. The one that you've rejected is the key to the whole building. God's building. This key is a stone that's been rejected. And Jesus himself is that rejected stone. And he, he makes this judgment on them verse 44 the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him he's talking about God's judgment through his son the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's facing this mob that hates him and thinks they can do what they please, the nation that God has established, and simply is a picture of mankind and their total rejection of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God says he's going to judge all who have rejected his son, he's not just talking about the leaders of Israel, he's talking every last individual ever lived. And when he says he's going to get rid of these tenants and bring it to other tenants, he's speaking about believers today we call the church. They are now the people of God. How do you become? That's by trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. Being willing to follow God's plan. Jesus is speaking about repentance, turning from sin, and embracing the Savior. The king has presented himself. There's been a ceremonial embracing or acknowledging of who he is. 
that ceremony ended very quickly and it turned into a mob assaulting the Savior. And God is saying, I am going to bring judgment on all who have rejected my son. You may be thinking in yourself, what does this mean for me? One is that you must honor the son today. Not just by saying you trust Jesus. You see, when John the Baptist was preaching this gospel, he said, repent and turn from your sin and prepare for the coming of the king. And that same message for us today is to turn from our sin. Turn from that sin that makes our life the most important thing that we do in all of life and to make Jesus and his entry and what he's doing and God's purpose through his son make that first and foremost in our lives. Are you doing that today? Are you willing to turn from your self-centered life to one that embraces Jesus and his full command and authority in your life? That's what God is calling us to do, to repent, to embrace his son as king. Father, we pray, we thank you for your word today. We pray, Lord, that you would drive it home to us as we prepare for communion right now, that we will worship you with a true heart. There's things in our lives that show that we struggle embracing you. We struggle with living a life that's centered on you and not on ourselves. But as we look at what you have done for us, the patience that you have shown, time and time again. Like the owner of the fig tree who waited patiently for three years and he was asked, wait one more year. And he waited. He's still looking for fruit. Lord, you're looking for fruit in our lives that we will commit and give ourselves wholly to you to, to be obedient to you without any reservation. And I pray that we come to that point right now simply say to you, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help me to genuinely surrender and to serve you. Help me to make each day that day that is committed to you and you working in my life as you want me to be. Help me to wake up with that attitude each and every day and start fresh, serving and committing to you, embracing the Lord Jesus Christ and understanding who you say he is and what you want him to be in our lives. So as we take communion, Lord, we pray that we might do it in spirit and truth. You might just continue your calling us to yourself and calling us to repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask our leaders if they will come forward and join me in the front as we prepare for communion today.